beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you believe that God wants you to be with Him? Do you believe that God wants you to be in His presence forever? No, perhaps at times you might struggle to believe that. Maybe you are all too aware aware of your shortcomings and failures. Why would God want me to be with Him? Or perhaps you find at times it's, it's a challenge to be accepted by others, and if people don't seem to want me to be around, why would God? A beloved, God indeed wants us to be with Him. And that's what the coming of Christ into the world shows without a doubt. And that's what we also celebrate at Christmas time, what we Remember, in this season, God is determined to have us live with Him. In fact, that's one of the main themes of the Bible. It starts at creation with the Garden of Eden, and it carries through all the way, all throughout the Bible, all the way to the book of Revelation and the New Jerusalem. God will be with His people. We find this theme in our text this morning, too. Here it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Again, that's what Christmas is all about. The Son of God came to live with us. And He came to live with us not just for a time. He came to live with us so that He would make this a reality forever. And as we look at this text, we can see there's also more. The Son of God came not only to make us live in God's presence, He also came to show us what God is truly like. You see, the fall into sin, it corrupted our knowledge of God. You see, the sinful mind does not know what God is truly like. The sinful mind twists the knowledge of God. But Christ came also to give us the clearest picture of who our God is. As it says in verse 18 of John 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God, the Son, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So that brings us also to the sermon theme. And I've summarized the sermon this morning as follows. See the glory, grace, and truth of God's eternal Son who came to live among us. And we'll look at, first of all, His presence and glory, and second, His grace and truth. Verse 14 begins with these words, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, what, what do those words mean? Now, who is this person called the Word? Well, this is none other than the Son of God. We hear Him described in the first this way in the first verses of this chapter. There it says, right at the beginning of the book of John, in the beginning was the Word. This Word, the Son of God, was there right in the beginning. He was not created. He was just there. He was always there. He was 
with God. He was with God in the beginning when God created the world and everything. In other words, when God the Father created the world, the Son of God was right there too. But he is more than just someone who was with God in the beginning. John 1 Verse 1 says, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's distinct, he's different person than God the Father. The Word was with God, but he is at the same time, the same essence as the Father. He was God. As the Nicene Creed puts it so well, Jesus Christ is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He is of one substance with the Father. Now, we still might wonder, why is the Son of God called the Word here? That's kind of a strange title, it seems. Well, it could be that the Apostle John is using creation language. After all, it's through the Word of God that the world was made. Look at Genesis 1. God spoke, and creation came into being through that Word of God. And the Apostle John might use the title word here to emphasize the Son's role in the creation of the world. As verse 3 says, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So that's the Son of God, through whom God created the world. And having seen that, listen now again to the words of our text. This Word, who was with God in the beginning, who is God, through whom all things were made, this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God, who is true God, He became Flesh, it says. What a striking way of saying it. Became flesh. That doesn't mean that God the Son stopped being God and became something else, a man. Yes, he did uh, bring upon himself a true human nature, but as the Athanasian Creed puts it, the Son of God did not transform his divinity into flesh. Rather, he took up his humanity into God. And so, just as soul and flesh are one man, so God and man are one in Christ. And that is the wonder of Christmas. See, the Son of God permanently united Himself to a human nature. The Word became flesh See, the human nature of Christ was not just a piece of clothing that he put on for a while or sort of costume he lived in for a time, only later on to take it off. The eternal Son of God became flesh. He committed himself to this for the rest of eternity. God the Son, through whom all things were made, joined Something of his own creation to himself forever. Right? The Creator joined his creation to himself. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God 
the eternal Son of God came to this earth, lived on this earth. Right? In Christ, God came and took up residence among humans, walking around on this earth. God came to live among His people. That's the wonder of the incarnation. That's the wonder that we celebrate at Christmas time. And the interesting thing is that verse 14 could actually be translated uh, differently, a little bit differently. We could translate verse 14 like this. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. And that, of course, is an allusion to the Old Testament tabernacle. You know, what was the purpose of that Old Testament tabernacle? Well, it was a tent for God to live in so that He could be with His people all the time. All the time. That's what God wanted. Right? The tabernacle was like a, a sort of, well, it was a tent, a, a sort of mobile home so that God could go with His people. He could go with them and be with them as they journeyed from the wilderness to the promised land. And there, God wanted to enjoy beautiful fellowship with His people in the land. That was the Old Testament tabernacle. See, the tabernacle is also the, it's actually the high point of the book of Exodus. You know, you might not think that is the case at first, uh, when you think of the book of Exodus, what, what do we think of most? Well, we, we probably think of Israel enslaved to Pharaoh. We think of Moses and the burning bush. Think of the plagues, the Passover, crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments, those sorts of things, right? But the real pinnacle is the tabernacle. God wanted to live with His people. He was not just trying to uh, promote some sort of social justice for these enslaved people. He wanted to rescue his people so that he could live with them and they could joyfully worship him as he dwelt among his people in that tent. That's why the second half of the book of Exodus focuses so much on that living space of God. That's the goal of the exodus from Egypt. But even more important than that Old Testament tabernacle is the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us. God lived among His people in the Old Testament tabernacle, but God lived among His people again in such a more glorious and intimate way in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the Old Testament tabernacle it looked largely unimpressive from the outside. Although it was skillfully made, it was, it was just a, a tent in the end. And if you merely looked at that tabernacle with your eyes, you probably wouldn't guess it was the dwelling place of God on earth. But there were times where this became clear. Just think of when the tabernacle was finished at the end of the book of Moses or Exodus. 
when Moses finished erecting it. There we read that the glory of the Lord it filled that tabernacle. Right in that plain-looking tent, also the glory of the Lord filled it. Signal that God had moved into that tent. He was there. He was there among His people. And it's the same thing with Christ. When people looked at Him, just on the outside, He looked largely unimpressive. Isaiah 53 says about Him, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and He had no beauty that we should desire Him. And for the most part, He seemed to live an unimpressive life. He worked as a carpenter for most of his days. Yes, a noble task, but it's not out of the ordinary. At first glance, you wouldn't think he was God in the flesh, living among his people. But there were times when this became crystal clear. Just as the presence of God in the tabernacle became clear when the glory of the Lord filled it, so the presence of God in Jesus Christ became clear when His glory shone through His person. And the glory of the eternal Son of God shone through in a number of ways. And the first way Jesus' glory in the book of John shone through was was by His miracles. To read through the book of John, especially the first 12 chapters, you can see the signs or the miracles that Jesus performed, showing the glory of God. In fact, just think of the first miracle Jesus did, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast, the power of creating And after that miracle, John 2, verse 11 says, This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he revealed his glory. And it says his disciples believed in him. They saw his glory, his divine glory, shine through in that moment. They believed in him. But sadly, not everyone realized this, as you can see throughout the book of John. It took the eyes of faith to see Jesus for who he was, even when people saw his signs, his miracles. Think of the, the healing of the man blind from birth in John 9. He realized that Jesus was the Son of God and had come from God. He put his faith in him. The Pharisees did not. They blinded their eyes to the glory of God. They refused to acknowledge whom Jesus was. In fact, despite his many signs, many of the Jewish people did not see Jesus for who he was. As it says in John 1, the the word came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. They did not receive him, did not believe in him. So that's the first way Jesus' divine glory shone through, by his miracles. The book of John highlights one more way. Jesus' divine glory was made known also through his death on the cross. And that might sound very strange at first, 
You know, Jesus died an extremely shameful and inglorious death on the cross. And yet, the cross also was a display of His glory. You see, God's glory is magnified by His wonderful works. That's how God glorifies Himself, by His wonderful works. And one way he does this is by showing his unfathomable love for his people. God is love. And he is glorified as God when that self-giving love is on display for us to worship and adore. And this love of God is shown in the giving of his son to die for us, as 1 John 4 says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice for our sins. And the Son of God displayed this same glory-gaining love of God by giving up his life for us. Right? He died for God's enemies while we were sinners. He gave up his life for us. And that is the love of God on display that magnifies the Son of God. He is worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our de- devotion, the one who suffered and died for us. Christ says in John 12, When I am lifted up from the earth, that is when he's crucified on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Christ draws worshipers through his sacrificial death. That's why we're here this morning to worship the Savior who was crucified for us. That's how his divine glory is revealed through his selfless love. And we can see who He is. He's the Son of God. When Jesus' disciple, Thomas, you know, he at first doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then later on, the Lord appeared to Thomas, and Thomas stuck his fingers into Jesus' pierced hands, and sighed, and then he exclaimed, my Lord, my God. Right? He, he saw through that who Jesus truly was. His eyes were open. And may we too as well, beloved, see your glorious Savior. Believe in Him. And worship Him. Brings us to our second point. Our text goes on. John writes, We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the Greek text is not entirely clear whether the words full of grace and truth refer primarily to the word glory or to uh, the words the only Son from the Father. If it refers to the Son, then it means that the Son is full of grace and truth, and he is. If it refers to glory, then it means that his glory is full of grace and truth, and it is. In the end, however, it doesn't make much difference, but either way, there is, again, 
Old Testament background coming through here. And again, it comes to us from the book of Exodus. See, in Exodus 32, uh, we have that sad story of the Israelites uh, making the golden calf and worshiping the golden calf. And in response, God was angry enough to destroy his people. However, Moses, being with the Lord on Mount Sinai at that time, he interceded for Israel. And through that intercession, disaster on Israel was averted, and the Lord forgave his people. And then, shortly after this, Moses asked the Lord, Please show me your glory. What a request from Moses asking the Lord, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name. Well, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then when the Lord passed by Moses, right, as he said, right, he's going to cause his glory to pass by him. As the Lord passed by Moses, he proclaimed his name, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Right? God's glory, his goodness was, was revealed in his name. His name Yahweh, or I am who I am, it's all about God's being, his character, who he is. And God was revealing himself to Moses. His glory and goodness emitted from his own person because of who he is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Here we have in Exodus 2, the glory of the Lord that is full of steadfast love, of faithfulness. And that's exactly what we have in our text. You see, God sent his Son into this world also to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen his glory, says John. We have seen his glory, much like Moses saw the glory of the Lord, experienced it. We've seen his glory. He's full of grace and truth. Right? Christ's glory on display throughout not only this book, but all of the scriptures is that same glory as Yahweh. Christ's glory is full of grace and truth, the same steadfast love and faithfulness of Yahweh. That's because God's Son is Yahweh in the flesh. He came to reveal God to us. Just as Moses saw the glory of God as God revealed himself on Mount Sinai, so John and his fellow disciples saw the glory of God in the person of Christ. By the Spirit, John wrote down this gospel so that we might see God's glory in Christ. The glory of his person. The glory that is full of grace and truth. 
And indeed, we see the grace of God, the steadfast love of the Lord in Jesus Christ. You know, in Exodus 33, God had every right to consume the Israelites for their sin. He could have done that. But he listened to Moses' intercession and he forgave them. That's the same grace of God in Christ. And think of John chapter 3. God gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think of John 4 and the Samaritan woman. She had committed repeated adultery. But Jesus revealed himself as a Christ to her, the Savior of the world, and also of a woman like her. And she put her faith in him for her salvation too. We think of John 10 where Jesus speaks of himself as a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's the glory of God, full of grace and steadfast love. We think of John 21 where Jesus forgives Peter for denying him three times. This is the same forgiving grace God has shown us. We are by nature lovers of sin. And by our rejection of God, the wrath of God justly sits on us. But Christ went to the cross because he is full of grace and steadfast love. He went to the cross so that we might experience and enjoy that steadfast love of the Lord forever. Christ's glory is full of truth and faithfulness also. Jesus Christ, as you read through this gospel, you can see he spoke the truth no matter what. He spoke the truth and he lived the truth and embodied the truth. John 1 verse 9 calls him the true light was coming into the world. John 6, he called himself the true bread that came down from heaven. John 15, he calls himself the true vine. Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Verse 16 of our text says, From his fullness we have received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean the covenant God made with Israel was devoid of grace, far from it. We've received grace upon grace, John 1 said. There was grace in that, in that covenant with Israel, but grace was made especially manifest now through the coming of Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came in the person of Christ. He displayed the steadfast love of the Lord. Sadly, many of the Jews did not believe him. Right? We, we read, the Son of God came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. May we not make that mistake ourselves. As John 1, verse 12 proclaims, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Right? If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a child of God. And for the children of God, that glorious future, a glorious future awaits. Remember, what is the, one of the goals of God? He wants to live with his people. He proved that by sending his son. 
If you believe in Christ, you will indeed live with God forever. Revelation 21 describes that glorious future for us. There the Apostle John describes the new Jerusalem with these words. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Beloved, one day we will live with God. In fact, John 21 suggests that in some way we will live in God. When we are there, then we will revel in the glory of God forever. We will enjoy His grace and His truth at all times. Amen.